Amen. Amen. All right, let's go. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles. I'm totally going to step on this microphone if I don't move it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text. We'll also have some uh, physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, we say that every week around here, but it's not some like weird visitor gift. We, we just love the Bible. We believe that God uses it to reveal himself to his people and a bunch of other important things too. And so uh, we want you reading the Bible as much as we possibly can around here. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, that makes it really, really hard. And so we can fix that by sending you home with a paperback Bible today. Romans chapter 10. So we're uh, pretty deep now in the uh, uh, kind of getting back to the back end, kind of towards the, the last little pieces of uh, a series that we began working on all the way back at Easter, right? Uh, Just and Justifier. It's a semi-slow walk through Paul's letter to the church at Rome, otherwise known as the book of Romans. And, and Romans is essentially a missionary support letter. Later on in chapter 15, we're going to come to that in about a couple of months now, uh, but later on in chapter 15, Paul says, tells them in the letter that his plan is to take the gospel on past them and into Spain, all right? And so he's in Corinth, we think, when he's writing this. Rome is to the west of them, and so he wants to go past them and on to Spain. Uh, Paul doesn't have any connection with Rome by this point. He's later going to spend a lot of time in Rome. He's going to be arrested there twice. He's ultimately going to be martyred there, but by the point of this letter's writing, he doesn't know anybody in Rome that we know about, all right? But he's heard good things about, his, about this church. He's heard what God is doing there, and so he sees them as an ally to help him take the gospel where God's calling him to take the gospel. Or at least where he thinks God's calling him to take the gospel. He'll never make it all the way to Spain, but God had better plans for him. But he writes this letter to the church at Rome to ask for that help. And it, but it's, it's not just a, hey guys, we're on the same team, how about you help a brother out kind of letter. Like other people, myself included, have kind of written missionary support letters like that. But no, Paul doesn't go that route. Instead, he casts a massive vision for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up him and others to take that gospel to the nations. He sets a high bar for what the gospel is, why it matters, why everyone needs to know it, why God is sending him and others, and why the church in Rome should play a role in helping him get there. He's walked through this little logical argument, this skyscraper that we've been calling it, and he's, he's established some things as he's gone along. He's, he's walked through God's holiness, absolute, sheer, other than this, He's also walked through our sinfulness. And because of that divide, he's laid out an indictment against us from, well, actually a number of different angles. To use Paul's own language, he says that all men are without excuse. But he's, that's not just a, a cute little phrase to help pack the punch. No, he, he starts by uh, bearing witness like through the creation order that, that even creation tells us that, that we have distanced ourselves and rejected, our, uh, rejected the, the good creator, the high king, and through the witness of our own consciences, we're also guilty. We suppress the truth. And then after that, it's through the witness of the law, God's good and right law that's supposed to lead to life, that's supposed to lead to blessing. Uh, we, we're not so good at following that. And so the law convicts us as well. And so, and so a holy and just God, a holy and just God must act consistently with his character and do something about it. He must, must punish sinners. Otherwise, he's not holy. And he's not just. He's something less than who he claims to be. And that's a bad problem. 
And truth be told, no one really, no one really balks at the idea of God judging people as long as we're talking about somebody else, right? Like everybody thinks that Hitler deserves to be in hell and that jerk that cuts you off on the way here this morning, right? But it's when we point the finger back at ourselves and start talking about our junk that this gets less than comfortable, right? Yeah. But in chapter 3, Paul says that all, and he means all, have fallen short of the glory of God because of our sin. It's not this type of sin or that type of sin, this one culturally approved thing versus this non-culturally approved thing. He says, no, all sinners have fallen short of God's glory. All people have fallen short of the glory of God. And then in chapter six, he says that the wages of sin, the thing rightly owed, the punishment that is owed for this sin is death. Not a polite word in polite company. God is perfectly just and he will give to all exactly what is owed to them and he has never once in all of eternity past and he never will once in all of eternity to come drop the ball on his responsibility to act justly he will act accordingly but but as we've seen throughout this series he also somehow likes to play the role of justifier. Someone who declares guilty people to be innocent. He, he declares them to be righteous. Sinners are declared to be righteous. And if you're wondering how he can be both, like how does it work that God can be simultaneously just and justifier? If you're trying to put the pieces in your head together and you're going, I'm not sure I buy that. Well, congratulations, you're paying attention because it doesn't work under normal circumstances. Justice and grace cannot exist at the same time in the same moment for most people. Grace and justice are opposites of each other. If you or, or I were to act with grace, then we cannot simultaneously act with justice. And so how in the world can God be consistently both? And consistency is actually, whether you realize it or not, of infinite importance here. He has to be consistent. God can't be gracious on one day and then just on the next. Like, we can't elect a president who waffles back and forth on opinions. Like, you can't be God either, right? He has to be both. You can't, he can't flip a coin in heaven and decide, I'm going to be gracious if it lands heads and just if it lands tails. God cannot operate like that. In order for God to be God, in order for him to act perfectly just and also at the same time justify sinners, he needs to be both at the very same moment in perfection. And so how does that work? And the answer is Jesus and his cross. Jesus came and lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are ever going to be capable of living. He died on the cross on purpose not as some accident, not as some testimony to a higher love. No, willingly laid down his life, died on purpose to pay the debt of sin that you owe. And in that death on the cross, God poured out his righteous wrath on his own son instead of you. See, the gospel is not that God ignores sin for just a little bit so he can slip you some, some grace under the table while nobody's looking. No, the gospel is that the full penalty of sin 
every drop of it was willingly and joyfully absorbed by Jesus on the cross. Perfect justice and perfect mercy meet head on in Jesus' shredded flesh. That's how he can be both. And this is why, again, you probably never really thought through this, but this is why any attempt to, to ignore his work on your behalf and instead offer up your own righteousness to God is actually a terribly blind mistake. Because our, our sin was so heinous that it necessitated the death of Jesus. Like, like you really think you could ever offer up something more pleasing to God? As if he would want that more than this? Here you go, God. I, know, I mean, I know your son's blood is precious, but I mean, have you seen my righteousness? It looks pretty awesome. That's what we do. And this leads us to our text for the morning. It's a text that we uh, closed our time out last week uh, looking at, um, but we kind of flew through it, and so we need to uh, back up and, and look at it again. Um, we're going to be in chapter 10, verse 1, uh, but in chapter 9, before we get to chapter 10, chapter 9, at the very beginning of chapter 9, Paul uh, tells us that he's heartbroken over the fate of his fellow Jews and that they don't know Jesus, right? He's absolutely heartbroken over it. He's in anguish is the word that he uses, that they have rejected the gospel. And, and while he's confident that, that it's God's plan, that things are happening this way, like he's not going, oh no, what happened? No, he points to, to uh, story after story after story after story. He gives an incredible illustration of why God is doing things the way that he's doing them. So it's, it's according to God's plan, but it's 100% something he still wishes he could change. He's heartbroken over it. And and so Paul's going to return to that in chapter 10, verse 1. He says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's talking about his, his fellow Jews. Verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Like, I don't know if you noticed this before, but we live in a world that tells you that it doesn't matter what you chase after in life as long as you do it with zeal. Have you come across this in our world? Just pour yourself into it and Give it all you got, and then that's what's going to be good for you. Go express yourself. I feel like an old man telling you to get off my lawn. Listen, while there are a handful of the things in, in, in this world that that advice might actually work for, because there's a really long list of stuff that that advice would be the worst possible thing that you could do. I don't know if you've ever really thought through this, but like, like, I mean, just play some of it out in your head. You know what I really feel like, like I've been made for? I want to be an axe murderer when I grow up. Go express yourself, Stephen. Is that a bad idea or a good idea? Bad. Thank you. You know what? I really hate people who don't look like me. I think I'm going to start a blog. As long as you feel it full of zeal. You know what I've always dreamed of doing? Have you, have you ever watched the hot dog eating contest on the 4th of July? 
That Joey Chestnut guy, he figured out a way to shove 74 hot dogs down his throat in 10 minutes. What, is that, is that gross to you? What do you? That's good TV right there. But, but listen, it's my dream. Don't you trample on my dream. See, I, I, I've been thinking about it. And if I, if I really apply myself, if I really give it my gusto, if I train and train and train and, and work my hardest, I think that I can figure out a way to go for 76. Just, just you wait. July the 4th is coming, guys. You're going to see me up there. Zeal is a good thing. Zeal focused in the wrong direction can be a bad thing. And zeal focused on something that will ultimately harm you is a deadly thing. The Jews that Paul is talking about here, the, the ones that he's heartbroken over for not knowing Jesus, they, they had zeal. They had zeal in spades. They had a religious devotion to their own man-made righteousness. And that devotion far surpassed anything you or I or anybody else you know has ever tried to offer up to God. Far surpassed. The average Jewish person, the average Jewish person, in Paul's day, structured their life around the pursuit of righteousness. They, they knew the law better than you and I know the law. They were faithful in the synagogue far more than you and I are, are going to church. They structured their calendars and their diets and even their bathing habits around God's law. And that's just the average Jewish person. Paul was a Pharisee, a leader among the Jews. He ran around with Pharisees. They, they took an oath to God that they would structure their life, pattern their life to God's law by every single letter. And so they led out in their synagogues and they led out in their religious communities. They, they understood and defended doctrinal matters when everybody else failed away. Zeal was never their problem. They have more zeal than you. A lot more. Their zeal is what ultimately led for them to call for Jesus' crucifixion, right? Jesus claimed to be God. You don't get the claim to be God. Let's go get him. Have all the zeal you could want. Their problem, though, was that the zeal was misplaced. It was tragically misplaced. It was marked by an arrogance and an ignorance, Paul says, that falsely believed that they could offer something to God that would impress him. That God would somehow go, hmm, I like that. Give me some more. That would somehow indebt him to them. But you can pack all the zeal you want to into your effort, into your man-made righteousness, but your man-made righteousness will never, ever, ever be anything other than insufficient for an infinitely holy God. Zeal is a good thing. Zeal focused on the wrong thing is bad. Zeal focused on something that will ultimately harm you is deadly. In fact, it's insulting that they would even try to offer it to him. And Paul illustrates that for us in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, I'm going to acknowledge for a second that those, that those three verses are really, really hard to kind of figure out and 
see what's going on at first glance. I get that. Um, what Paul is doing there, what Paul's doing there is pointing to two obviously impossible things. Obviously impossible things. He says, yes, Moses' law promised life. All right? he, God gave the law and said, do this and you will live. It promised life. But over and over and over again, ad nauseum, throughout this letter so far, Paul has made it explicitly clear that you and I aren't ever capable of actually living up to that law. And so that life-giving law actually produced death. Trying to justify yourself through God's law is actually impossible. You are incapable of ever doing anything about it. And it would be just as impossible as, oh, I don't know, say, taking a little trip up to heaven and dragging the Christ back down. You got that in you today? You want to go for an afternoon stroll? It's a picture that you probably haven't thought through before, but Surprise, you can't do that. You've got no power to make the incarnation happen. You, God had to come down on his own, right? I mean, just play that out in your head. Can you imagine giving an ultimatum to the Son of God? You get down here this instant. And then when he doesn't listen, you go up to heaven, you grab him by the ear, and you drag him back down. Anybody feel like a lightning bolt's about to happen? completely impossible. It's a ridiculous notion, and that's the point that Paul is making. You, you can't do that. You can't force that to happen. If it weren't for the Father's benevolent act of sending the Son, the incarnation would have never happened. It wouldn't. It's not something you pulled off. It's something he did. You know what else is impossible? You have zero ability to ascend into the abyss and bring Christ back up from the dead. You want to schedule that for later this afternoon? I mean, I know you're pretty awesome, but like, can we all admit that that one's above our pay grade? God had to do that. Paul says that, that your attempts to try to present yourself as righteous before an infinitely holy God who actually is righteous it's not just a vain attempt. It's not only just not going to work. Guys, it's a hopelessly blind attempt. Like, like we tend to think that we can pull this off because we've lost sight of who we are and who he is. We have no idea how big the gap actually is. The gap between our righteousness and God's standards is not some minor thing that if we just like zero in our focus and tweak the dials a little bit that we can somehow make it more efficient and then close the gap those couple of millimeters. If we just work our tails off a little bit more this weekend, we can finally get there. You call it zeal. You call it passion. You call it willpower. You can call it having a type A personality. It doesn't really matter. You're standing at the edge of a cliff. You've got a canyon in front of you, and you can take a running start if you want, but it's not going to go very well. God looks on our, I don't need Jesus, I can do this myself, ever, and goes, you kidding me right now? Really? That's, you think that's pleasing to me? No, it's insulting to me, especially in light of what I did give. Oh, but God, you don't understand, I have zeal. Zealous or not, all have fallen short of my glory, and the wages of this sin is death. 
So aren't you aching for some good news right now? Like who's ready to give up trying? This is where verse 8 comes into play. But what does it say? Speaking about the writings of Moses. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. He's quoting Deuteronomy there. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, and he quotes Isaiah here, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then he quotes Jude here, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Or not Jude, Joel, sorry. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the message of the gospel is that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose again to pay the penalty for sin that you owe, right? But the call of the gospel The call of the gospel is to lay down your vain attempts to stand on your own and instead submit to King Jesus. That's the call of the gospel. Paul says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If I could take the liberty and try to summarize that, believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what he said he would do. That's a nutshell explanation. That he really is the incarnate son of God. He really did die to make payment for sin and that he really was raised as a vindication of his perfect righteousness and a promise for your resurrection too. Believe he's who he says he is and he's done what he says he would do. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. But Paul also says call on him as Lord. Call on him as Lord. In other words, call on him to be the one to save you and lead you. And keep you. Ah, but you don't understand, Stephen. I've got this pile of stuff over here that I've already worked so hard on. I mean, don't you see it? I don't want to leave all this behind. Surely I can bring this with me and somehow sweeten the deal. Or, or, or maybe I should just go ahead and finish what I've started here. Lay it down. Walk away, for it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, not your previous work. Uh, but I, I mean, I've got so much I, I could be ashamed of. Like, like I should really ha- clean myself up first, right? For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, I don't really have a religious background. I'd, I'd really be starting from zero here. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, you, me, your next door neighbor, that guy at work that you don't ever really talk to, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not only is your man-made effort a vain attempt to please him, but it's also the exact opposite of what he's actually called on you to do. Quit trying to offer up your own righteousness. He doesn't want it. He doesn't need it. He's not impressed by it. So why do you keep spinning your wheels for it? What he wants from you is to trust him and to follow him. Full stop. Because the gospel is not 
It's not complicated. It's not some tangled web of, that you've got to try to figure out on your pathway of however many years on your spiritual journey. There's, there are no secrets and higher revelations to unlock here. Now the gospel call is the announcement that King Jesus is good. He's good and that he came to, to reconcile you to himself, even though neither you nor I deserve it, and that he made provision to bring you home. And so get off of your throne and give it back to him. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the gospel really isn't complicated. It's just not. It really is, it really is easier. It really is better. It really is a more life-giving option. But that kind of raises a question, right? If it's not complicated, if it really is easier, if it really is better, if it, if it really is the more life-giving option, then, then why don't more people follow Jesus? I mean, isn't it obvious? Why don't more people follow Jesus? Why isn't there some some mass rush of people to go get them some, a little bit of Jesus, right? Why don't more people get in on this? Well, there's actually a couple of reasons. For starters, we talked last week about Romans 9, right? We, we got into some incredibly weighty theology talking about uh, God's right to choose those he will show mercy to versus those he chooses not to, right? He doesn't owe mercy to anyone, you, me, anybody else. All men are without excuse, right? But to some, he chooses to extend mercy. For some, he chooses to make himself known and awaken hearts to, him, to see him and his goodness. And so the reality, just the bare bones reality is that some people will never hear the gospel gospel because they don't want to hear the gospel. Doesn't matter how many times you tell them and tell them and tell them and plead with them and explain it this way and then explain it that way. Just doesn't matter. They see God as the enemy and so why would they ever choose to follow him? He's the bad guy in their story. And that probably breaks your heart the same way it broke Paul's heart for his fellow Jews, right? When they rejected Jesus. It's not wrong to wish you could change that. Paul did. Some people don't know Jesus and will not know Jesus because Jesus hasn't yet made himself known to them. Just the reality. But that's not the case for Everybody. That's not everyone in this scenario. Look at what Paul says next. Look back at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, so um, it's an incredibly cut and dry thing, right? Like it's not complicated. You call on the name of the Lord in faith and you will be saved. But, but Paul's not done writing. In verse 14, he asks an incredibly profound and quite common sense question. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, that's a good question, Paul. Sure. I mean, think about it, right? That, that makes a lot of sense, right? You, you've got to call on Jesus, but like if you don't believe that Jesus can actually do something about your problem, why would you ever call on him? I mean, that's a common sense question, right? Why would anyone ever call on Jesus if they don't believe that he can actually do something about their problem? Calling on Jesus as Lord is not some mindless incantation. 
It's not some magical keyword to unlock salvation. It's an action of placing your faith of him and it accompanies truly placing your faith in him. If you don't actually believe that Jesus can save you, then saying some words that sound like calling on him isn't going to change anything. They're just words, right? They're just words. Okay, good, good point, Paul. But he's not done. He's got another common sense question. Look what he says next. How will they not call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never what? Heard. Whom they've never heard. So it's another common sense question, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. People need to believe that Jesus can save them before they'll call on him. Great. But they also need to have heard that Jesus can save them before they'll believe, before they'll call. Gotcha. People won't call if they don't believe, and if they, want, they won't believe if they've never heard. Sure. Great logic, Paul, but look what he says next. And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. So Paul says that in order for people to call on Jesus as Lord, they first need to believe that Jesus can save them. And in order for people to believe that they can be saved by Jesus, they first need to hear that Jesus can save them. But before that they can hear that Jesus can save them, somebody's got to actually open up their mouths that already know Jesus and tell them about Jesus. Paul says that in order for someone... In order for someone to be told that Jesus can save them, somebody who knows Jesus needs to start talking. People don't wake up one day and just magically find themselves to be Christians. Trace that story back. Someone else was obedient to speak the gospel somewhere. Always. There's a common phrase that gets tossed around uh, by people who are uh, in the Christian subculture, broader Christian sub- subculture, uh, by a guy named St. Francis of Assisi. You've probably heard of him, right? It's a, if you've spent any time in church circles at all, you've heard this, this quote, right? Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Yeah. That, that quote gets tossed around by people who probably, honestly, are tired of watching the church just talk a lot and never do. I get that. As a pastor, I definitely get that, really. Um, there are a few glaring problems with the quote, though. Uh, for one, we have zero record that Francis ever said anything like that. Like, I know we live in the age of the internet, but, like, like that used to be a thing that disqualified somebody from attributing a quote to them, right? That we can't actually say that they said it, but, like, it, well, in, in the internet, that's not how things work anymore, so I guess we can allow Francis to have that quote. Um, so that's one problem. The second problem is that the quote doesn't sound anything at all like something Francis would have said. Like, we don't have a lot of stories about a 13th century Catholic monk. There's, there's, I mean, the stories are few and far between. His biography is not very rounded out. Uh, But what we do have available to know about him is that the dude never shut up about the gospel. Like, he was always telling people about Jesus. There are even stories where he would share the gospel with animals. And so whenever you see a picture of St. Francis, He's always got animals with him because he was the patron saint of animals. Like if the guy is practicing his evangelism spiel on bunny rabbits, he probably thinks it's important. Francis was always talking about the gospel. But there's a third reason. It's actually the biggest one. 
why the preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words, quote, is problematic. It's because the idea is completely foreign to the Bible. It, it just really is. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what God has explicitly told his people to do. Yes and amen, the gospel should be adorned with works. It should be illustrated and accompanied with works that, that point to and lift up the gospel and call people's attention to the gospel. Those are good and right and lovely things. He came to, to reconcile you to himself. And that's a massive, massive, massive deal. The gospel is an announcement about King Jesus, that he came to, to save even though we don't deserve it. And that announcement is that he has made provision to bring you home. It is good news. And so get off the throne you stole from him and give it back. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Church family, it is also abundantly true that there are people who don't know Jesus yet for no other reason but because Jesus' people have not yet started talking about Jesus enough. Full stop. People call on Jesus, but before they call, they've got to believe. And before they can believe, they've got to heard. And before they can hear, someone has to speak. It's the way that God has ordained. The gospel is not complicated, and the method of sharing the gospel isn't complicated either. It's just not. God has ordained for people to be called into his kingdom, called into salvation by eternal words on the lips of those who are already in the kingdom. So if you want to see more people in the kingdom, the first step is to start talking about Jesus and then watch what a good God does with that for his glory. Watch how he spins that and turns that and uses that for his purposes. And verse 14, all by itself, kind of is an, is an encapsulated argument, right? Like you and I, like, like we all have to have, have a responsibility to, to act on, walk in obedience to verse 14, right? But, well, well Paul's logic here isn't done. He sees another layer down, and so he asks another common sense question to the church at Rome. Look at verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are what? Sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. All right, so Paul has made it explicitly clear by uh, this point that, that people have to call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. There's no other way into the kingdom, right? There's no side door into heaven, right? Salvation will only ever come by grace through faith. We must call on the name of the Lord. But the Apostle Paul also makes it clear right here that there will be people who have not yet had the opportunity to call on Jesus until someone takes the initiative to send someone else. And how will they preach unless they are sent? In other words, you and I have a biblical mandate to preach to our neighbor, but you and I also have a biblical mandate to make sure someone is preaching to those who don't have a neighbor. And so how in the world do we walk in obedience to this? Guys, we go. Sometimes it's going close, sometimes it's going far, but we go. And we help others go. 
as much as we are able. And this is why we talk about missions so much around here, like it's simultaneously our greatest joy and our greatest responsibility. Because it is. We go and we send others. This is why we're always looking for ways to support missionaries in other places and church plants in other places. And sometimes it's, it's why we're sending you to those places, uh, places where the gospel is even more scarce than Nashua, New Hampshire. I don't know what are the gospels pretty scarce in Nashua, New Hampshire. Yeah, but he's got you here. And so he's got a witness here. There are neighbors all over the place. God calls us to make the gospel known among the nations, and so we must do both. We speak the gospel to our neighbor, and we make sure it's being spoken to those who don't have a neighbor. And so consider being a part of some of our mission efforts this summer. We actually have a pretty long list of stuff. I'd love to walk you through it some other time, but like, like if you can't say yes to those, help others say yes. Maybe, maybe go and help others say yes. I don't know what that looks like for you, but you do. Send so that others can preach, so that people can hear, so that people can believe, so that people can call on Jesus. Now, if I were a smart man, obviously I'm not, but if I were a smart man, this is where we, we, we would shut everything down, and it would be this big crescendo, the music would swell, and we'd have an altar call, and we'd pass the plate around for missions. If I were a smart man, that's what I'd do. But that's not how the real world works. And Paul knows it. And so instead of calling for a response, Paul doesn't even break the paragraph, he keeps writing. In love for us, he brings us back down to earth. Look at verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their word, uh, words to the ends of the world. Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will, make you a I will make you jealous for those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held, you, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Hey, you remember how I said a while back that um, some people can hear the gospel over and over and over and over again and never actually want the gospel? Doesn't matter how hard you, you work them up. Doesn't matter if you changed your approach and found a more winsome way. They don't want Jesus because Jesus hasn't changed their heart to want him yet. So you plead with them and you rethink everything and you try a little harder next time and you pray a little more fervently, but they just never, ever respond the way you hope. Or am I the only one that's had those conversations? And a lot of people in that evangelism moment go, oh, it must have been me. 
It's probably my fault, right? I need to get better at my presentation, or I need to, to know the Bible better. I need to learn a more winsome and articulate way of, of presenting this stuff. In fact, you know what? I should probably just shut down the whole evangelism thing until I get better at this stuff. Or am I the only one that's thought that? Listen, we should all get better at presenting the gospel. Like, training's not a bad thing. That's why we have training around here. Training's a good thing. And, like, we should all learn how to, to have more winsome and intelligent spiritual conversations with people. I think that's a needed thing in our culture, not just the church. And is anybody dumb enough to say, yeah, I don't think I need to know the Bible any better. But at the end of the day, people don't reject the gospel because you weren't articulate enough. They just don't. They reject the gospel because they reject King Jesus. People reject the gospel because God hasn't opened their eyes to see it and to value it. They don't see his beauty. They don't see his goodness. They don't see his great love for them. Yours and my job is to obediently speak the gospel. It's God's job to awaken hearts to know him. So we press on, right? We press on. So we keep plugging away. Even when it's hard, because you know what? Maybe tomorrow's the day that they'll meet Jesus. Maybe the day after that. And even if they don't, then you've still done exactly what your Lord has commanded you to do. And that matters, right? You're the one who will one day get that well done, good, and faithful servant. And so what do we do with this stuff? Like, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, guys, we, we press into God. We say it every week, and I know it sounds weird saying it every week, but it's the same answer every week. We press into God. I, I think you do that. I think you flesh that out by beginning to figure out who he's put around you that needs to hear of a Savior this week who needs to have the words of the gospel spoken so that they can hear and then ultimately believe and call. Will some of those people never respond faithfully? Yup. Absolutely true. But will some of them hear, believe, and call? Yeah. That changes people's eternities. So we have a lot of work to do, right? We have a lot of work to do. It's not a complicated work. It's just an eternally important work. The gospel is not complicated. The method of our gospel presentation is not complicated, but it is an eternal, significant work. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing, and that'll be an opportunity for you to respond to him this morning in whatever way he's calling you to. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word this morning too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. Verse 27, 21 said, our God hold out, holds out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He holds out his hands to you this morning. How are you going to respond to him? Jesus came to pay the penalty of sin that you owe. He died and was raised again because he has righteousness enough to spare. And he calls on you to call on him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead.
So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's an opportunity for you to respond to God's word this morning as well. And I'll be right down here if somebody needs some help walking through what that response of faith looks like. Maybe you've got some other decision that you need to make today. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's the baptism thing. Maybe it's the joining the church thing. Maybe it's uh, saying yes to going on mission thing. This is a time for you to respond as well. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, but let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for Romans. Thank you for an uncomplicated gospel and an uncomplicated method of proclaiming your gospel. But if I could speak for everybody else in this room and confess, I am terrified of these things. I more highly value my position in society. I more highly value my uh, identity as somebody who's got things figured out and doesn't stir the pot too much. God, you haven't, you haven't called me to any of those things. You called me to speak with words, actively speak with words to those I come across. And while many will say no, because their hearts are, are far from you, There are also many who will say yes, and you have appointed me to be the one to speak. So God, it seems such a weird thing to say, but make me brave this week. You haven't given me a spirit of fear. Make me brave. Would the gospel come rolling off of my tongue so much easier than any other thing I choose to talk about? You are good and you came to reconcile and you died to make provision and you were raised to bring us with you and so the call is clear. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Would you make your church called Nashua Baptist a bold witness this week? For those in here who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you save even today? God, as we respond to you this morning, would you take our feeble effort that could only ever be fueled by faith and make it something that's pleasing to you? You are good, and in you we place our hope and our trust. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.